Voters dislike hyper-partisanship, but are open primaries the way to temper the tone of political discourse? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Wednesday, April 26th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, John Hunter is with us for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation. A Northern State University student researcher gains national attention for her ideas about fighting a fungus. Eureka High School stages the world premiere of the play Keep Away From My Kukin. We'll talk with the playwright. Plus, the Buddha sends his best wishes in the form of haiku. Frank Palmersheim joins us for National Poetry Month. That's coming up later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. The historic mining town of Leed is nestled in the Black Hills. It's a town where history thrives thanks to the efforts of volunteers, homeowners, and city employees who see value in preserving Leeds' historic properties. Laura Rohde brings you this story for SDPB. Its past brought Tom Johnson and Gail Parfrey to Leed. Leed has this, this interesting history, this mining town history um, that really goes back to the, the heart and soul of what the mining industry was all about and, of course, the, the, the home state gold mine, etc. Um, so it was, it was sort of that edge of history that uh, really brought us to lead. And together with their contractor, David Gockel, this couple from Buffalo, South Dakota, joined a growing number of lead residents working to preserve this mining town's history by restoring its historic properties. In their case, the Cotton House. This house is pretty iconic as far as the history of lead. Uh, you know, James Cotton went on to own many, much of the business on Main Street. Um, so he was a very important figure in the history of Leed. And um, his, his presence in this town, um, whether people understand it or not, um, has made, uh, you know, has made Leed what it, what it has been and what it is now. Like most of Leed's historic figures, James Cotton started out working for the Homestake Mining Company. Then the immigrant from Cornwall, England, left the mine to open a whiskey distillery. The elegant Georgian Victorian brick home he built on the corner of Julius and Paul was a testament to his success. But time was not kind to the Cotton House. Well, we first looked at this house. Um, it, was, it, it was for sale, and um, we, we looked it over and just decided that it was too much of a money pit, that we weren't going to do it. So we said no. So what does a money pit look like? A brick shell, missing floors, and bare stud walls. The 120-year-old cotton house was in such a state of disrepair that the owner deeded it to the city of Leed, and Tom and Gail eventually bought the home at public auction for $30,000. Then they painstakingly restored the property to its original grandeur. Fortunately, the original doors and some ornately carved decorative woodwork did remain. For the rest of the home, they had to find craftsmen to recreate replicas of the historic moldings. They invested more than $100,000 in custom windows alone. Today, the Cotton House is grand once again. 
and its neighbor, the Stewart House, has also been restored. Preserving Leeds' historic properties is a positive trend, explained City of Leeds building inspector Dennis Schumacher. When I first started at Leeds, there was I had 30 houses on my list that probably needed to go away. They were going to be condemned. Now I have none because people come in and buy in these houses and they fix them up. The homestake mine that built Leeds is also the reason many of its historic properties have disappeared. Dennis Schumacher. In the early 1900s were the uh, subsidence of the mine where the underground tunnels and the open stopes were caving in and they had to move part of the, most a lot of the town and a lot of buildings disappeared then and then in 1982 or right around in there uh, when the open cut expanded they we lost a city park and we lost uh, quite a few buildings and residents then too. When the open cut mine expanded 130 historic properties were lost, explained Phyllis Fleming. The tour guide and former member of Lead Historic Preservation Commission said preserving Leeds' historic properties is truly a citizen-led effort. Residents have to decide that. The residents have to come forward and say, we want to save this. We want to make this work. That's the only way the Opera House has gotten to the point it is. Because I remember going in there with Jackie Fuller and Lee Mathis when we were on historic preservation. And it was a burned out shell. And a former mayor at that time wanted to tear it down, the rest of it, and make it um, either a parking lot, a ramp, or a, um, low income apartments. And we just looked at each other and said, wow, no, this needs to be saved. Sherry Meindiger is the chair of the Lead Historic Preservation Commission. This volunteer board of citizens provide education, resources, and encouragement to historic property owners who want to preserve Leeds' important history. Homeowners like Tom Johnson and Gail Parfrey, who restored the Cotton House. We're, we're just thrilled to pieces that people have taken a home that could have been demolished or bulldozed and they took it under their wings and their little pride and joy, so we're thrilled to pieces about it. When the city of Leeds auctioned the Cotton House in 2018, the proceeds of the sale went to Leeds Historic Preservation Commission to aid in preservation efforts. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lura Rohde. Tune in to the premiere of Dakota Life Thursday, May 4th for more on the Cotton House. And you can visit Historic Lead for yourself this Memorial Day weekend when the Lead Historic Preservation Commission hosts the Hidden Treasure Heritage Festival. To learn more and take a digital tour of the Cotton House, you can go to sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, two Northern State University students traveled to Seattle last month. They presented their research at the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology International Conference. Kennedy Davis was one of those students. Her research explored a new way to fight fungus. She's with me now from SDPB's Tom and Danielle Amon Foundation Studio at Northern State in Aberdeen. Kennedy, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about, uh, before we get into your research itself, the conference in Seattle and how you ended up 
even getting to that point? What's the process? Oh, well, part of my research is part of my undergraduate thesis um, for the honors program here at Northern. And um, well, my, my advisor, Dr. Mitchell, he wanted to take um, me and the other student to uh, like a hard science conference just so that we can kind of get a taste for other research and just like actual hard science that people are doing. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your research. What is the core, uh, core idea? Oh, I'm looking at treatments to a specific type of fungus called Candida, um, specifically, specifically Candida albicans, which is um, an opportunistic pathogen, and it really compromised. So elderly folks, or those dealing with diabetes or cancer, they're really, their immune system is not really equipped to deal with secondary infections. And Candida really loves to take that opportunity and use it to its advantage. And the issue nowadays is that we've had increased antimicrobial resistance um, with bacteria and, and now also fungus. And so we need some novel treatment options for these resistant strains. And so I've kind of started looking into natural products, um, specifically Silymarin, which comes from, um, it's an extract derived from milk thistle, which is that really spiky plant that you'll kind of see around on hikes out and about. And then also uh, turmeric, which is that yellow powder that's really, that's used in curry in Indian cuisine and whatnot. Hmm. So this, uh, what we normally think of as a prickly pest or what we normally have in our kitchen to spice up our food might also hold the key to fighting this fungus. Tell me a little bit about the excitement in the idea that uh, you saw from Dr. Mitchell and from others who were looking at your work. Um, so, Let's see. Can I just have you repeat that? Yeah, we're having Sorry. a tiny bit it of a, cut out a little yeah, bit. we're having a little problem with our connection between uh, Northern State. That's not Kennedy's fault at all. Tell me, I'm wondering about the excitement about your research. What did you, what kind of feedback did you get? Yeah, I don't think Kennedy oh, so, can uh, tell you. Everyone was super but excited yeah. for Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that Kennedy can, we hear, can now? hear. Is it, all is it good? Our, I can hear you. Are you are you solid? Or maybe we'll just let you off the hook. So <laughs> I'm solid now. Oh, you're solid. Now. Okay, go ahead and talk about the feedback and the excitement, Kennedy. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, well, we've had some promising results um, with uh, my research so far, so we're really excited and. I mean, hopefully I'll be able to continue something along the lines when I go off to um, graduate school here in the fall. Um, but yeah, everyone was super excited. Um, my professor, he's 
uber into it, especially with the natural products stuff. That's kind of his yeah. thing that he gets excited about. And then um, my honors advisor, Dr. Bakarni, you know, she's always um, really pushing us honor students to just do our best and it always really pans out f for for the good yeah all that coming out of northern state university in aberdeen in south dakota kennedy davis um, her research was recognized at the american society for biochemistry and molecular biology international conference um, thank you so much for being here good luck in grad school and thanks for p joining us online or on the on the radio today appreciate it Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The ballot initiative picture is coming further into focus with the petition drive for an open primaries ballot question. That would do away with party primaries we know today and instead invite all voters to cast their ballots regardless of political party. Well, how exactly... Would that work? Our Dakota Political Junkies conversation today is with John Hunter. He is publisher emeritus of the Madison Daily Leader and member of the South Dakota Newspaper Hall of Fame. He's with me now in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lori. I love ballot questions. I just do. <laughs> me too. There's so much, there's so much, there's, you know, there's tea about, you know, there's tea to spill about ballot questions and who wants them and who doesn't and and the notoriously long South Dakota ballots and the history of this is just all interesting to me. Could be a kerfuffle, maybe. There could be a kerfuffle on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> could be a hullabaloo coming. <laughs> this is open primaries, and some people who've been talking open primaries for quite some time, Joe Kirby and others, are um, doing a lot of the, the forward work, the communications about open primaries to help catch us up. This isn't the first time it's been talked right. about, Right. It was on the ballot in... 2006, uh, 2016, and uh, it failed 55-45. So this is a, a resurrection of that with uh, with a significant change. But uh, for listeners thinking about open primaries, what this means is now in South Dakota law, uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, go to the polls in June and even numbered years, and they get different ballots. They get to hear the Republican candidates you want to nominate for a general election in November. Here's the ones that the other party does. Independents don't have a primary. They're, they are excluded from that process. And in South Dakota, roughly 50% of registered voters are Republicans. Roughly 25% are Democrats. Roughly 25 are independents. So those 25 don't, don't participate in the primary process, only in the general election. So um, this proposal says, let's open this up. We will have everybody votes, you know, all three of those groups, common ballot, and they would have all the candidates on there with their party affiliation behind their name, but they could choose Republicans, Democrats, or whatever. And then the top two for each office would go to the general election where everyone would vote again, and essentially a runoff is what that takes that to. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Uh, it's in response, really, to hyper-partisanship, and that's what, what drives this type of thing. Let's dive into that. It's a response to hyper-partisanship or is it a response to the dominance of the Republican Party in this state, to the, the supermajority? I think it's the former. I think it is responsible, uh, responsive to hyper-partisanship. Red states and blue states alike have passed these open primaries laws across the country. And, it, uh, and the results show that the, it doesn't really change a blue state from being a red state or vice versa. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it does what what some people believe, and certainly I believe, is that it tends to bring people a little bit more to the middle uh, from the far. So if you're voting in a in in, uh, in a South Dakota Republican primary, you have to appeal to sometimes very partisan Republican voters, which then your stand becomes more partisan. There used to be a time when you'd have to go to the general election and using your word, I've heard on the radio, Lori, pivot mm-hmm. at uh, some point to appeal to all voters. They don't mm-hmm. have to do that anymore. 21 out of the 35 Senate seats last year were determined in the Republican primary. It didn't, yeah. you know, n- neither Democrats nor uh, independents got to vote for those. And if the primary turnout is low, then a very small percentage of South Even Dakota smaller. voters are deciding the final outcome. Right. Right. Let's just toss out a number. Let's say in a presidential year, you tend to get more. But let's just toss out um, 40%. 40% of 50% is 20%. So you're, mm-hmm. And they, they might be enthusiastic um, party members, too. Sure. Sure. Um, opponents to this will argue um, this is just Democrats' way of trying to get more people. Uh, you're getting beat at the ballot box. Do something different. Or they will say, if you're an independent and you don't like the way things are going, join a party, show up for the meetings in your county, Republican or Democrat. What do you think the response would be from the proponents to those arguments? I think I, I, that's a good question. I don't know what they would say. If I were, if I were them, what I would say was uh, that opportunity has been around for a long time to join a party or to make a change. The trend is in the opposite direction. People are leaving parties. People are becoming more independent. Even some people who are registered to a party uh, identify as independent anyway. So um, that opportunity has, has been available and has not worked. And so this is in response to that. Yeah. How many people sign up, do you think, to be Republican who aren't really Republican just because they want something on the ballot? Right. I don't know. And, you know, uh, if you want to participate in the primary process, you have to join a, a party. But apparently and people really, aren't you have to that. join the Republican Party. <laughs> in this <laughs> yeah, state, yeah. You joining a party doesn't mean you can join the Libertarian Party or the Democratic Party and have any kind of influence in a primary right. election it's, in it's, South Dakota. Yeah, you're right. Libertarians less than 1%. You know, you can nominate your candidate who will then right. not win later. Yeah. Do we know other states that have done this? The impact, you said, is not to change a blue state from a red state or a, bl- a red state from a blue state. What has happened? Has the hyper-partisanship gone down, or is that just the pool that we swim in now? Right. It's hard to imagine in, in 2023 that there are any states that have become less partisan. Yeah. But uh, so the answer is I don't know what has happened in other states, and that's probably a good question for Joe Kirby or one of the other organizers. Yeah, well, we'll be talking about this in the days ahead. And I'm also curious, John, about as ballot questions come up, they have to get a certain amount of signatures to get them on the ballot. You know, you're not, when you sign the petition, you're not deciding whether you want, you might, you might sign a petition and vote against it when it's on the ballot. But there is a, a, um, a push to, to not sign. So there's a billboard on 10th Street near my house. Decline to sign. Don't, don't sign the, um, any abortion petitions, or, you know, for example. So decline to sign. Just walk away from these petitions. 
going back to the beginning before it even gets on the ballot. What's, what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I find it interesting. And we joked before the show that if once you have a, a slogan that rhymes, you're officially a marketing campaign, so <laughs> decline to sign. But I think people um, are expanding as far as they can in, in any direction to uh, endorse or defeat issues. And that would be you know, even if something passes at the ballot boxes, people say, look, we'll just take it in court. We'll go to court or we'll have this. And, and so this that would be post-passing or failing. What you're talking about is pre-passing or failing. Let's right. just not even get it on the ballot so it does, doesn't even give it a chance. Um, so I think people are, are so eager t- for their side that they will they will expand it beyond just that, you know, that day on the ballot box. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I, you know, you just hope that People will still respect the process that that um, petitions are a part of American government, civics, right? And that should pres- and you don't have to sign certainly. And and I would encourage people not to sign if you're opposed to something. Um, sure. But um, but respect the process and let's not uh, interrupt. And I know you've mentioned too about out-of-state signature gatherers. That was a whole thing back this legislative right. session. Who's who's holding the clipboard and handing it to you? And what are the rules? And how can we... So there's all kinds of um, maneuvering, I guess. We'll, we're going to talk more about this one, aren't we? I yes, can just we're going to talk more about maneuvering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the great concerns is that rural South Dakotans will not have as much of a voice because if you need numbers and you need 35,000 people to sign something, you go to Sioux Falls. Uh, you go to Rapid City, you go to a population center, and you get your signatures, which was one of the other efforts that failed this legislative session. Make people go to the counties, yeah, make right. sure them get so many votes from you know geographically representative places. But again, that all happens election day. But that's a good point. You're right. I had forgotten about that petition thing where you needed a certain number of signatures from you know five percent of the registered voters from each. Yeah. Uh, county, which would be a monumental effort, which is the reason it didn't pass. But it it was inten- an attempt to try to get more rural participation in the petition process. Yeah. So if Sioux Falls wants open primaries, does the whole state get them? Right. Is the question. Well, and what, what we're facing a little bit in South Dakota is many other states, you'll have red states with blue cities. Hmm. And uh, South Dakota is a little bit like that. So Sioux Falls does... Know, Sioux Falls is a blue city. Uh, well... <laughs> Maybe if you purple, <laughs> is, there, is there a hue in there that you agree with? I, I'm not going to make that assessment. I'm just saying I don't know that that it's blue. Maybe purple. But you'll see. You'll see that in other yeah. certainly other uh, states around the country where it, sure the rural areas are red and the urban areas are blue. Yeah, or some hue. I think Mayor Paul Tenhagen said in our interview that it was a purple city. So we're going to okay. go with purple. <laughs> if the mayor... I'm not, don't, don't quote me on that. He might not have said that. So it's purple or maroon. Which right, one's right. closer to each side? <laughs> They're pretty There's close. a hullabaloo about mauve. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about our next topic before we let you go, which is um, issue memorandums. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dig in. So uh, if you don't mind me taking the lead on this... Please. Um, the uh, executive board of the legislature, which we often think of the legislature just working in January, February, and part of March, they actually work much of the year. And the, there's something called the executive board of the legislature, which makes a lot of decisions between sessions. And one of their responsibilities post-session is to um, set up or establish summer studies, uh, and not summer sessions, by the Thank way. Thank you. 
<laughs> preemptively warning <laughs> listeners that sometimes I say session and it's a study. <laughs> so they did approve two summer studies this year, one on uh, kind of um, county funding and their opportunities and, and their costs of doing business, uh, and as well as nursing home um, uh, reimbursements and so on. Now, that's, I thought that was the end of that, right? And then up pops the executive board, and they said, oh, by the way, we want the LRC to study some other issues. And they tossed out seven others. Now, these are far from a summer study. They're, mm-hmm. It's not going to have participation of legislators. It's, they're not going to have public hearings. Citizens aren't going to do this. It's just said, look, we need some research. We want the LRC paid staff in peer to do some research on uh, these seven topics. What do other states, and there's at least two of them say, other states around us, what do they do? And uh, it's just, a, it's pure research, but it does give, I think, a little bit of a clue as to what people are thinking and what issues might be coming up. Yeah, this future policymaking questions. This is sort of the, the big umbrella. What are some of the topics on that list? Well, I think the two that really jumped out, it was, it was like a red light that came out. <laughs> One was on nuclear energy. Yeah. Boy, we haven't talked about that in South Dakota for since the Pathfinder thing uh, southeast of Sioux Falls many, many years ago. So uh, the, the memorandum is, is intended to provide an overview of nuclear energy technology. And you probably read in the, in the papers about micro-nuclear plants. Now that's a little bit of a trend where you don't have the monster plants, but several smaller ones that would be mm-hmm. safer. Um, and, you know, what are federal laws? What are regulations? You know, all those kinds of things. I don't know who brought that up. I, I didn't, don't remember hearing anything during the session about nuclear energy, but there it is. Yeah. Summary of the laws and regulations of states bordering South Dakota. So yeah, won't something's that, up. Won't that be interesting? And <laughs> just as Excel Energy had its, I think it was Excel had their um, their radioactive water leak up in Minnesota. So mm. uh, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting. The other one that jumped out too is irrigation and water systems that, re- re- excuse me, rely on water from the Missouri. That at least I'm sure is in response to the Colorado River being so low. And some people in California go, look, let's just go up to South Dakota and get some. They've got lots of water up there. Let's take it. So I think people are in full awareness of that. Shout out to Seth Tupper on South Dakota Searchlight. Last time he was on the Junkies, he had written about this for Searchlight. He did a nice piece that was uh, somewhat hypothetical, but it ties into... um, that's not an insult. It's not like he was writing hypothetically, but he was asking that question. What if? Yeah. And they're asking the same question here. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, specifically in here, so whether out-of-state projects can cross the borders of South Dakota to access water from the Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. And so, and now I think at least a little bit of South Dakota response to that. I know the Lewis and Clark system has, and I hope this is public because also now millions of people are going to hear it on the radio. Um, is that Lewis and Clark is looking about setting up something similar that would be west of the Missouri River, that they can utilize Missouri River water for western South Dakota, just as they successfully have done over a long period of time in eastern South Dakota, southwest Minnesota, and northwest Iowa. And this brings up all these questions about water rights and how long you can sort of put dibs on something. And I think Governor Nome is going to weigh on this. She basically said if it comes to your state, you know, that's, that's ours to use. Now, people in Iowa, are they going to agree with that, or are we going to agree with something in North Dakota? Let's pretend California piped into North Dakota and drew it all out before it ever crosses South Dakota. Yeah. I, it's a big issue. Water is always a big issue, and here we are. Um, so those two, there's plenty of other, I think, interesting ones. I think the emergency clauses in legislation is worth an issue memorandum. 
That's when you attach to a bill that said uh, this doesn't take effect July 1st, which is the default date. Instead, it's going to vote. It's going to take effect as soon as the governor signs it. And I think it's it might be overused. I think that's probably what they're looking at. Sure. Okay. Also, taxation of precious metals. Interesting. Um, publication of legal notices. Legislation that failed this year. I'm mm-hmm. um, looking for more information on how other states have addressed that. What was the other one? The two of them didn't go through. Daycare funding right. was a no-go, and future of schooling was a no-go. That's a pretty big topic for an issue also, memorandum. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that you think why it failed? Um, no, I, I, I don't. Current I think laws related to virtual school, alternative education, and state apprenticeships. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, and Lee Schoenbeck and Will Mortensen, I think, are leading that, and they have to do with that. But I do think the, the minerals thing or the precious metals and so forth, maybe what if someone discovers lithium in South Dakota or something and how that would change the world, the demand, or any other of these rare earth metals. So it's, it's, worth, a, it's worth study by paid staff to, to do that to better prepare our legislators for a session. All right. Memorandum will seek to identify whether there are any extracted materials that are not taxed but are taxed in other states and will discuss the rates at which renewable and nuclear energies are taxed in South Dakota. So again, if you're just tuning in, these are not things that are, you know, these are, we need more information, LRC working with the Legislative Executive Board, but it is sort of a hint about some of the topics that, are coming up and that are important. And there is not an opportunity here for the public to participate in that process. Right, right. Those are for summer studies or the the session itself. All right. John Hunter, thank you so much for stopping by. This has been super fascinating. I suspect all these things continue to criss and cross and and come together in the days ahead. (laughs) You heard it here. You'll hear it again. (laughs) And you'll hear it in other news outlets, and you'll hear it in your backyard as you talk to your neighbors. So these are big topics. Thanks for being here. We'll be ready. Thanks for the invitation. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. This Friday, a new play opens on a high school stage. The world premiere of Keep Away from My Kookin is staging at Eureka High School. Its writer and director is with me now on the phone to talk about how she turned a Midwestern staple into a theatrical performance. Rosa Junt, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. For people who are new to South Dakota, tell us what Kookin is. The rest of us already All right. know. <laughs> so Kookin... So is a German-Russian dessert that is quite popular up here in in our area and across the many parts of the state. Um, It's a custardy-type, pie-type dessert, and um, it actually became our state dessert um, back in the, uh, I think, early 2000s. Kuchen or Kugan? Kugan. Kugan. I, I guess that's how I pronounce it. All right. Well, tell me a little bit about the production and, and how unusual is it for you to write the the play that the students will stage? Well, uh, this is my seventh year um, acting as the director here at, at EHS, but it's my first year writing the play. And um, I guess I, I went about writing the play because I could not find a play that I really liked, um, that I wanted to do, and uh, instead I thought, hey, I'll just write my own. And actually, it was um, in 2017, I was 
um, at a Schmeckfest planning meeting, which Schmeckfest was um, a celebration we held in Eureka to celebrate our German-Russian heritage, um, and I was part of the committee. I was at a Schmeckfest meeting, and I had this idea, and I actually came up with the uh, title of the play first, yeah. Keep Away from My Coogan, and from there I kind of thought, hey, it'd be really funny to have a, you know, a little German-Russian grandma um, and have everybody trying to get her Coogan recipe because she makes the best Coogan in town. <laughs> and um, I wrote it down on the corner of my agenda. I took a picture of it with my phone, and it's been sitting in my photos on my phone for, you know, since 2017. Wow. And finally this year I said, I'm doing it. I'm going to do it, finally. <laughs> Was it also in your brain, or did you stumble upon it in your phone? Um, it was kind of a little of both. Okay. I, I remembered that it was always in my phone, but I had a little, like I had the synopsis written on that corner of the corner of the agenda. And so I, I actually had told the kids that that Tuesday morning, uh, I'd read a bunch of plays on Monday night and I had to pick my plays cause it was getting down to crunch time where I had to have a play picked out cause we had to start practice. And I thought about writing it Tuesday morning. I talked to some of my kids in class and they really encouraged me and thought it would be awesome <laughs> to be in a play by their, their teacher. And by the end of that day, I had a brainstormed and had a synopsis down and for, for scenes. And by that following Sunday, I finished the whole thing. So, so tell me, cause Tuesday through Sunday, Sunday, I wrote the whole play. <laughs> I love that. Tell me how, cause this is a real opportunity. Normally you are beholden to the script to a certain extent, you cannot make a whole lot of changes, a few things mm -hmm. here and there. But here, if something isn't working on stage, you can workshop it and make oh, those yeah. adjustments. So how did this class of students contribute to what the, the final staging will actually be? I actually, I had a, I shared the document with them. So they were with me the entire process from, from, start to finish and they would give me feedback on like what they thought the scenes were like and they'd be like oh Miss Junt that's so funny I I really like that or they might throw a line in um, and in <laughs> fact I had one student who he was just going to be the stage crew well he read the part of the play and he goes oh you know I might be interested in doing that character and I go oh really you want to act and I go well I'd have to write another <laughs> write another character in because I actually wrote it almost I mean it's this play is pretty bespoke to my cast members that I right. knew were going to be to be in it um so I wrote it with with that in mind auditions were a breeze I almost didn't even have auditions <laughs> um but I ended up writing this this student in and I wrote a whole new character and added an entire new scene so it was kind of mm. awesome so it's been a really fun fun process and we change things we add stuff and I keep track of it because I might try to publish it afterwards. Right. And and so the impact of that on a student's education, there's so much in theater. Some of them will want to go on and do community theater. Some might want to be professional theater uh, performers. Some will just be in business or ag or healthcare and reference back to the experience of their high school play but they also have this added experience of collaboration. What do you think yeah. have been the gold nuggets that have come out of that? I've written this kind of for you because I knew you could perform it. Uh, tell me what you think. 
What is the collaboration meant for these kids after really high school? Feel, yeah, I think they really feel more ownership towards this play. Mm-hmm. And they haven't had any problems saying, Miss John, what do we do? What if we do this? What if we do this? And I think that's going to be an experience that they'll be be able to remember for, for years. Is there and could, maybe could... Uh, hopefully, uh, um, hopefully, you know, they are inspired to do the original like this bill in the future placed as well. the money with the governor's office. <laughs> Ignore that. Ignore the man in our ear right now. <laughs> Go ahead. You're, yes, keep going. Um, yeah, hopefully they'll be able to un- like uh, take this experience and and maybe be inspired to do something in their future too, just like it. Yeah. Is there Coogan on stage? There actually is. It's my first year ever using edible props. Um, <laughs> in fact, I had to learn to make Coogan myself. I've never made it, even though I grew up in Eureka. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never made Coogan. I had to learn to make it. Um, luckily, you know, we had a few snow days, <laughs> just a few. And I uh, taught myself how to make Coogan, and we're using those Coogans in, in the play. If you ever have any doubt that high school teachers are brave, you are put to rest here with Rosa Junt. Thank you so much. Keep Away From My Coogan premieres at Eureka High School Friday, April 28th. There will be a 2 p.m. matinee and a 7 p.m. evening show. Break a leg. All right. Thank you very much. April is coming to a close, and so is National Poetry Month. But poetry on In the Moment doesn't end in April, of course. However, I am particularly pleased to welcome our next guest to the studio during National Poetry Month. Frank Palmersheim is a professor and a poet, a legal scholar, and a haiku guru. I have his latest correspondence in my hands, and I have the Buddha in the Kirby family studio with me for a few delightful moments. Welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Lori. It's a delight to be here. Tell us a little bit, for people who have not been following your work as long as I have, when did you start? You're a professor of law at uh, the University of South Dakota Law School, emeritus now. Uh, How early was poetry part of your life? Well, I, it, it always has, but it became, I think, most important to me when we started to have children. And because you have such intense experiences with your children, I wanted a way to remember those experiences. And it just seemed to me, by writing poetry about my children, hopefully poetry is concentrated enough that it could sort of capture the intensity of the experience with my children. And when I look back at some of those early poems, uh, I think just from my own subjective point of view, it actually worked. And so I was encouraged to keep going in that direction. And then along the way, at some point, these Buddha poems kind of blossomed. I don't know quite where that came from. 
And so the Buddha poems, the haiku poems, have become kind of the kind of method of poetic expression I've used in, in recent years. For me personally, finding one of the volumes of the Buddha correspondence in the USD bookstore years ago um, was there was just something about the, the packaging, something about the trim size, something about what was in there that felt like the thing I didn't know I needed. So maybe that's a, a reader thing that kind of caught on more than, and you, you fortunately have responded to it. <laughs> You've met the demand of your fans, <laughs> if that is to say. Uh, have you studied haiku? Here's my real question. It, do you study haiku by reading it and writing it, or do you study haiku by classroom study and a book about haiku? What's more useful Well, a for little you? bit of both. I mean, I never took a course in haiku or a course in Buddha, but you know, I re read fairly widely, and I became aware of haiku poetry. And for me, I was quite taken with the, uh, the intensity of that kind of expression, you know, basically to create an image or a thought or two and then just leave it. They're seldom kind of resolved. And I liked that notion. I liked that notion. And I think for readers, uh, it's a wide open kind of space. They're also quick. The idea is to capture a moment and see what happens both for you as the writer and for any potential reader. The Buddha thing is a little bit broader. Uh, <clears throat> people often ask me, I guess it's a compliment, am I a Buddhist? And I, I wouldn't say I'm a Buddhist, but I'm a person interested in Buddha and Buddhism. The notion that many things are fleeting also to be captured in a moment quite different from sort of the <clears throat> Judeo-Christian kind of framework. And so I like the notion of Buddha, Buddha as a persona, Buddha as a funny person, uh, as a dry person, as a thoughtful person, those kind of things. And just over the years, the response has been wonderful to me. People have been really interested in Buddha, in the chapbooks. And so it's encouraged me to go on. You know, I've developed this little... Buddha mailing list. You're on it, Lori. You know, I send out triptychs kind of twice a year. And, you know, that mailing list, it sounds unreal or surreal. It, it, it's up to about 500. Oh, wow. And <laughs> just send them out. And, you know, people have been kind uh, for the most part in their responses. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's send some out to the listeners of South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm hoping you'll read for us. And I'm just going to sit back and Give it space between and let people think about it and please. Yeah, sure. I and mean, jump in at any time. Yeah. Uh, the, the first one is the one that opens this most recent chapbook, which is called Idleness of a Recluse Poet. And that phrase is not really a phrase from me. There's a tradition or was a tradition in Chinese poetry where oftentimes public servants would serve in metropolises and have a public life. And then at some point, they would leave or be asked to leave, and they would go to the country and live in the country, drink wine, be a recluse, be idle, and write poetry. And for me, on some level, that seemed like a, a wonderful combination to have a professional life in which you're serving and then go from the city to the country reflect, drink wine, 
write short poems uh, for reasons I can't explain and I'm not interested in explaining. I'm not interested in anyone analyzing what I'm saying mm-hmm. either. It, it just seemed to me uh, a kind of wonderful balance to have in one's life. And so the first poem in this collection is Buddha's Ode to Craft. How, how does Buddha actually think about craft uh, that he's using and striving to embody? Buddha's Ode to Craft. Brushstroke, few words, faint grammar, spirit work, conjured and made with human hands. The next Buddha poem was titled, Buddha Feeds Breadcrumbs to the Birds. I love this one. <laughs> Breadcrumbs, <laughs> then birds. Something finds you, nourishes, then flies away. And for me, part of it's just an observation, but it's how the observation, what meaning it takes on in terms of how, uh, <clears throat> how something just finds you, me, and it nourishes us, and, you know, it's gone. We don't know why it came. We don't know where it's going, but we're grateful that somehow it was able to nourish us, and that's what I was striving to, to do in that uh, particular poem. This is called Buddha Embraces the Sabbath, and it kind of is after the well-known uh, <clears throat> writer, rabbi, and activist, uh, Abraham Herschel. So Buddha embraces the Sabbath. Praise without petition, peace without war, prayer without end. And the next poem uh, reflects a deliberate attempt on my part to, to write a poem for my students, and particularly for my uh, <clears throat> Indian law students over these many, many years. And so it's called, Buddha Sends a Hunter-Gatherer Poem to Professor Pomersheim's Indian Law Class. Cut complicity, gather reason, seek balance, show respect, find spirit, pour it all out. I want to jump in quickly because I was, I'm taking a, a trip tomorrow. Jackie Hendry's going to host the show for me. And I'm getting on a plane. And I was planning what I would bring on the plane. And normally you think, like, what is the book that's going to keep me engaged mm-hmm. for the whole flight if there's a... And that's usually something kind of hefty or entertaining and light, depending on the mood that you're in. And this is not going to take up much space in my, <laughs> in my carry-on. But say something before we wrap up. We only have like 30 more seconds about the meditation that happens after the poem. Well, you know, it's just however it works for you and for me as the writer. You know, it comes to you and then maybe it leaves right away. And if it has resonance or reverberation, it will come back to you at some time to say, oh, this recalls this particular moment, this particular uh, poem. So it, it's hard to say. You know, in terms of that poem that I just read, that mm-hmm. I wrote for my students, I, I was quite amazed. And I made it into a bookmark. 
and yeah. gave it to all my students. And I told them that they had to put it under their pillow when they went to sleep so that Buddha and Indian law would be in their ear ever, even when they were sleeping. Yeah. And I was also surprised and honored to see that there are one or two faculty members who just uh, <clears throat> ripped the, the, the poem out of his originally in, of all places, the South Dakota Law Review, and put it <laughs> on their door. And one of yeah. the bookmarks uh, the dean of law school actually has on his door. And so for me, those are just powerful things that, you know, it's, it's reaching people. Uh, so... Frank Palmersheim, um, come back again when it's not Poetry Month. Come back often, seasonally. <laughs> mm -hmm. Love your work. It means a lot to me personally. It means a lot that you joined us here today. Well, thank you so much, Laurie. Travel yeah. safely, and may Buddha be with you. And thank mm -hmm. you for listening.